The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have, not, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City Moline. And, uh, Again, we're just so glad that you're here with us this morning. If this is your first time visiting us or you're relatively new, we want to invite you to join us in community and on mission. Um, And and the primary way that we do that at Sacred City is through the context of missional communities, um, groups of people that uh, congregate together, not just once a week, but but to live a life together um, and, and seek to bless and to serve people within our city, to care for and encourage each other uh, as the body of Christ. And so we want to invite you into the missional community. Um, we have a, uh, what's it called, a map, that's what it is, uh, a map in the back. Um, if you want to get plugged into that, we'd love to have you join us. Um, we have been going through the book of First Peter. Um, I think this may be week four or five. Um, and that's what we do at Sacred City. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. That's typically how we preach. Um, and so we're right here in the beginning of First Peter. Um, I'm really excited about it. And uh, I, I'm, I think the Lord has a word for us this morning. So I want to pray and get right to it. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can stand here on a Sunday morning and in our life and profess that I believe that God is redeeming this world. And I believe that he's doing it through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, this is good news that we long to hear. This is what we want uh, to experience deep down in the bellows of our soul. And so, Father, would you help us to see and to hear this morning as we come to your word? Would you help us to feast on the glory, on the beauty, the truth of the gospel this morning. I ask for your help as I preach this morning that the Spirit would anoint my tongue and my mind to think and to communicate clearly for the edification of the saints and for those who would be redeemed by the blood of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live... We live in the greatest era of mankind... Right now, we live in the greatest era of mankind. Now, this has nothing to do with the fight that was on last night. has nothing to do with the fact that Taylor Swift said she was going to launch a new album here in the next month. has nothing to do with the eclipse that happened on Monday. Nothing regarding those things. We live in the greatest era of mankind. And, and if you think about it, that's a pretty, pretty bold statement, right? Now, when I say that, some of you might be thinking, sure, that's plausible. Right? It, you might have an optimistic view of, of the world around you. Right? You look at technology and, and you see that, that, that technology and, and education is more accessible than ever, making life easier for us, making us the most informed generation of all time. You can look and see the surge of humanitarian efforts. More people than ever have access, access to clean water and to healthy food. We see the life expectancy 
especially here in America, is going up along with the access to good health care. We see pro- poverty dropping. Right? If you're like me, you're looking forward to February when the Oakland Raiders are going to be Super Bowl contenders. Right? You look at things and it's pretty optimistic. But if you're keyed into, right, you're, you're, if you're keyed into current events, if you're, you're keyed into what's going on in the world, you're probably a little bit more skeptical. Right? You're thinking, how could I say that? How could I say that this is the greatest era ever when there's so much critique going on? Right? Regardless of your political leaning, one thing both sides agree on is that there are issues, specifically in our country. See, we, both sides of the aisle agree that, that something needs to change. Now, there's differences in opinions on how to execute that, but they agree that something has to change. And no matter how you look at things, you can see that there are all kinds of injustices, there's all kinds of, of error, there's all kinds of problems in our world. You look and you see that, that more fatherless children are being born than ever. There's an ongoing drug epidemic. There is still racial tension in our country. More kids are committing suicide than ever. The objectification of women has now been monetized into a billion-dollar industry. The poor continue to be marginalized and systematically, uh, systemically oppressed by the rich. Now, all of this, it's either a recent development, it, it, they're, they're old problems in new form, or they have, they're problems that have intensified over the last 50 years. See, when we take an honest inventory of these things, it's sickening and discouraging to look at all the bad things, all the, the atrocities, right? It, it certainly feels like the bad outweighs the good. There is so much that is not great about this era that we find ourselves in. So how could I possibly say that this is the greatest era of mankind? See, the claim that I'm making this morning has nothing to do with with my own opinion. See, this is the main thrust of Peter's thinking in verses 10 through 12. He's telling us that there's something profoundly wonderful about the time that we are in right now. Right, something so great Something so magnificent that it eclipses all of the atrocities. Now, without overglorifying the good and without ignoring what's terrible, we can say that this is the greatest time ever to be alive. And it has nothing to do with our moral, social, or humanitarian advancement. It has nothing to do with who is or who isn't in office. It has nothing to do with the political climate. It has nothing to do with the progress in the areas of education, technology, or industry. It has nothing to do with any human achievement because it is bigger than that. See, this claim is true because of where we are situated within the scope of redemptive history. This isn't about any human achievement. It is about what God has accomplished. It is about when God had injected himself into our world to accomplish redemption for us. And as we dig into these three verses this morning, Peter's gonna show us that this world-changing moment that the prophets look forward to and and the preachers point back to 
is what all creation has been, been anticipating. As time has progressed, God has been giving hints and clues to the people that, that, that were around before during the era of prophets of what he was up to. He was giving them little snippets, little hints at what's going on. It's like preschoolers, right? Who, who you give them a, a, a picture that's an up-close view of something. Maybe it's like a fire truck, but it's, it's an up-close view of, of the hose. And you can't really make out what it is until you get the whole picture. See, God was dropping those little hints, giving those little pictures to say, hey, here's a piece of what I'm gonna do. Let me show you the whole picture. And as time progressed, he did so. Now Peter is saying, because where we are situated in redemptive history, we have a better vantage point than anyone else that has come before us. We can see the whole picture here. There's no more guessing. There's no more wondering what we're looking at. There's no more trying to figure out what God is up to. See, God has gathered the pieces. He has arranged them to reveal exactly what he was doing. And guys, when you see the whole picture, when you get a glimpse of it, it is spectacular, right? It is almost unbelievable. If it weren't coming from God himself, I don't think any of us would believe it. It's so incredible. Our text is gonna tell us that angels are baffled by it. They can't wrap their minds around it. It's unlike anything else. And so what Peter is going to do, he's going to frame it up. He's going to show us this picture in a sense. But he's also going to connect this big picture view to our current circumstances. See, because we have this revelation, because we can see what God has done, what God is doing, we can understand for ourselves, we can make sense of our current realities. See, if you want to know how to make sense of the world that you look that you live in you must look at it through this lens that's the only way right even more personally if you want to make sense of the various trials that you find yourself in the suffering the persecution the the rough times the, the relational turmoil you have to look at it through this lens see the seasons and the situations that you find yourself in when you feel like you're in a in a rock tumbler right you're, you're bumping and grinding against, you know, you're in your relationships. You feel the tension with the culture. All of these times where we, we just feel like we're getting rubbed and rubbed and, and pressed. This view makes sense of those things. Especially when you are suffering because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because what we're seeing here. In this context, and this isn't new, this isn't just a new thing that we're, we're finding out here in 2017, that when you are living all in for Jesus, you will find people who take offense to you. You will find people who won't want to be your friends anymore. They'll want to silence you, they'll want to malign you, they'll, they'll make your words seem confusing, seem like you're not trustworthy, So in light of all these things, Peter's painting a picture to help us make sense of this. And so to understand the significance of this mo moment that Peter's pointing back to, what we need to do is we need to do a survey of redemptive history, right? 
because the narrative that we find ourselves in shapes and informs the way that we live, right? We, the human race, is a story-formed people. We are captured by stories. Now, my wife, I love football. My wife does not. But one of the things that gets her into it is when she hears the stories of the football players, right? How they faced adversity, what their stories, how they got to the point where they're playing the NFL. And so it's a story that captivates us. Everybody loves a story. Everybody loves a good story. Because we're a story-formed people. And stories, not only, not only do they explain how we got to where we're at, they, they help us to make sense of the way things are. Stories give us meaning. It tells us why we're here. It tells us what we're made for. It tells us where we're going. And and like I said, this isn't just a Christian thing. Every religion or every secular ideology is telling some kind of a story. They're telling the story of the good life, right? Telling the story of the good life and how to get there, what it looks like. Every single worldview is doing this. And when those worldviews are compared to the narrative of, uh, that the God of the Bible is telling, all of those other worldviews so, seem so small and insignificant, right? That even if their version of the good life were to, to manifest, it would still leave you wanting, wouldn't, wouldn't seem as significant or satisfying. So let's dig in. What is this narrative? What is God? What's the story that God is telling us? Now, the story can be broken down into four main themes. And, and if you have gone through the story-formed way in a missional community, this is going to sound familiar to you. My MC just started this, this week, and so I'm probably going to give a lot of it away. So, uh, but this is too important to, like, hold on to it. And those four themes, those chapters that God is telling in the story of redemption go like this. There's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. These are the four chapters in the story of, of redemptive history that God's telling. Now, creation it starts with, in the beginning, God created. See, God didn't just create some sort of place that's like sort of cool. Like, God created paradise. Beautiful, extravagant Everything is good, right, and perfect. Perfect harmony between God and man and the world. This is what God called Eden, the Garden of Eden. It's a place where human flourishing could happen in every capacity. Spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, relational. A place where there's no wars, no pain, no suffering. Nothing bad at all. Nothing but pure and constant joy, delight, This is a picture of the good life, right? In the beginning, God created the good life. See, this is the environment that we were all made for. This is our natural habitat. This is woven into our DNA to desire, to long for this state. This is where the idea of the good life came from. This is, it's it's something that's embedded within us. It isn't a construct of our mind. It isn't wishful thinking. This has been part of the way that we were made. Like a a fish longs for water, we long for the good life because we were created for it. See, we crave Eden. And the second chapter of the story goes to the fall, right? There's a problem that arises that while God created 
paradise for us to live in, something went horrifically wrong. The fall is what it's known as happens in Genesis 3. It's when the first inhabitants of paradise, Adam and Eve, decided to mess it all up by giving into temptation and rebellion against God. Satan took the form of a snake. He lied to Adam and Eve and said that God was holding out on them, that, that God had, that there's actually a better version of the good life. And you could access that if you were to take this fruit that God said not to eat, you could tap into that. The good life would become so much better. But the question is, where did Satan come from? If everything was good and right and perfect, like how did this tempter, how did Satan come into the picture? Well, the Bible talks about a cosmic war that happens between two sets of angels, right? Angels are these beautiful and glorious heavenly creatures that God created to worship him and to glorify him, to display his beauty, Satan was the leader of one of these groups of angels who rebelled against God. He became prideful and said, yes, I am beautiful. I am glorious. I should be worshiped just like God. His desire was to claim deity with God, to become part of the Trinity. He was trying to inject himself so it wouldn't be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It would be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Lucifer. He was trying to, to obtain the status of God. But in this war, Satan and his rebellious angels are defeated and they're thrown down from heaven waiting for God's final judgment. That's where Satan came from. And he took the form of snake, slithered in. Hey, you guys, I got a secret. The good life is out here. It's if you eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, Satan's agenda is to rob God of his glory. But here's the thing. God's glory cannot be taken away from him, ever. God is intrinsically glorious. That is who he is. It is his identity. Satan cannot take that away. And he realizes this, but Satan says, you know what? I I can't take it away, but I can deter, deter other people from seeing God as glorious. I can get them sidetracked. So that's what he did. He attempted to keep God's creatures, man and woman, from worshiping and seeing God as glorious with hopes that they would settle for something that's significantly less glorious and worship him instead. See, in Adam and Eve, they fell for it. They bit into it, literally. They ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and things started to fall apart. Instantly, In that moment, when the fruit hit their tongues, they knew what shame was for the first time. They had a deep sense that something was wrong with them. They covered their nakedness. The the marital bliss that they once experienced is now decayed. It's, It's not good anymore because they're blaming each other for their mistakes. Creation begins to unravel. We see natural disasters and floods and and animals might eat them now. Right, and I'm convinced, I've spent a lot of time outside this last weekend, that this is where mosquitoes came from. And everything else is now subject to sickness, decay, pain, and death. This is the result of a fall. 
This was the end of an era, right? They once had the good life, and now they traded it in for a, a counterfeit version. God escorted them out of the garden. They said, I can't let you live in paradise anymore. But before God sent them out, he gave them a hint of what he would do one day. This is called the Proto-Evangelium. He said that the serpent has bruised your heel, but one day the serpent's head would be crushed. See, God gave the first hint of what he was going to do to make things right. He says, one day, the one who broke paradise would be broken himself. But from that point on, things got worse and worse as the fall was long and hard. Right? You can follow this through the book of Genesis and beyond. It was long and hard. We see brother murdering brother. We see wars emerge, sickness, brokenness, until we reach the time of Noah where God is just baffled by how bad man has become. There's a passage in the story of Noah that says, the wickedness of man was great, and every intention and every thought of man's heart was only evil always. Man that was created to, to, to enjoy and cherish and treasure what was good, right, beautiful, and true now loves what is the opposite. We feast on evil. And it even says that God got to a point where he regretted that he had made man because it grieved him so deeply to see his, his treasured people, right, not living in the good life. He wasn't sad that he made man. He was sad that, that, that things had gotten to the way that it did, that they weren't living in their natural habitat. It grieved him to see them like this. So in the story of Noah, you know, there's a flood that happens where God says, you know what, maybe I'll hit the reset button, we'll just wipe out all the evil on the earth. And it's not long after that where there's this realization that even, even the righteous man of Noah who preached and preached the gospel day in and day out, trying to convince people that God was gonna come with his wrath and judgment one day, and there's a safety place for them. If they were to get on the ark, God would keep them safe and preserve them and, and promise them deliverance from such a plague. But nobody listens. And though Noah is a, a righteous man, he's a faithful man of God, he is still laced with sin. This isn't long before the sinfulness of Noah and his family is exposed. And so in a very real sense, in the narrative of scripture, we see that the fall is carrying on. However, along the way, though, though man is sort of in a downward spiral, God keeps hinting at the idea of redemption. He keeps promising that he will one day fix everything that has been broken. See, this is where the prophets come onto the scene. God is calling up, raising up men and women who are called by God to, to proclaim his coming works, what he will one day do. Now, these are the prophets that, that Peter prophesied, or Peter speaks of in verse 10 in our passage today. Now, these prophets, they don't know how God is going to execute this plan, but they have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, what the end result is. We can go to Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the most prolific prophets. 
He's got a couple passages that, that where God has revealed to him what it's gonna look like. He says, come now, let us reason together. This is Isaiah chapter 1, 18 through 20. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall, listen to this. This is totally heading back to the Eden. You shall eat of the good of the land. See, God is showing them. He's pointing them back to this time where everything was the way it was supposed to, to be. He goes on later in his, in his, uh, in his, in his book, he, in, in chapter 11, he, verse 6, he paints another picture of what this glorious day will look like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion shall be together, and the little sh- child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, these prophets are pointing to the day where everything is finally made right. Other prophets say that, that the, the weapons that were once used for war will be beaten into to plows and to shovels to tend to the land. That is Garden of Eden language pointing back to paradise. Now Peter's saying, if you want to go open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter is saying the same thing here in his own words. Verse 10 starts out. Concerning this salvation. See, Peter here is pointing to the end goal. He's already laid out what this salvation is. If you go back to uh, verse three, blessed be the Lord God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation right there. That paradise. That inheritance that's unfading, imperishable, exponentially glorious. This is the salvation that Peter's pointing to. This is what the prophets are pointing to. This glorious moment in time where all is set right. See, this is the fully realized end result of salvation. A salvation that is complete. See, a lot of times when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a moment in time where I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to to forgive me of my sins and to, to give me new life, and that's part of salvation. But that right there is only the beginning of salvation, that there is an end goal. There is a day when all is made new, that even, even when you go back, Peter talks about right now we don't see Jesus. We can't see him face to face, but there will be a one day where we do see our Savior face to face, when we see the reality of salvation complete. This is the day when our faith becomes sight. No, we don't see Jesus now. One day we will, right there, guys, to see Jesus face to face, to look him in the eye, to know his care and concern and his deep love for us, that is what Eden is like. 
it's not just the palm trees and the streets of gold and the running water and all this beautiful. The apex of Eden is being with God to see Jesus face to face. This is the grace. This is the experience that all the prophets are pointing to, the full experience of being with God. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. See, the prophets were all pointing to this end goal. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. See, through this time, God is revealing snippets of his plan, and they're trying to make sense. The prophets are getting these prophecies from God, right? First Peter, Peter actually, Second Peter, verse 1, or first, Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 21, Peter actually tells us that no prophecy came from man, but through God himself, through his Holy Spirit. Right, so these people aren't getting these prophecies like, oh, this would be cool if this happens one day. God is giving them these prophecies. He's telling them what to look forward to. And he's revealing this plan of redemption over the course of time, over hundreds of years. Just these little close shots. And all of these prophecies, they point to a rescuer, a hero, a Christ. Isaiah says, here's a sign. That there will be a boy, a baby boy, born of a virgin. Micah says that it's going to happen in Bethlehem. Other prophets say that he'll be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say he's going to be a, an heir of King David's throne. Other prophets say that he has the power to heal, to teach in parables. He is the embodiment of righteousness, faithfulness, and wisdom. That he would be wrongfully accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He'd be betrayed, crucified, and one day would be resurrected. See, the prophets had all these little snippets, and we now, we look at these and it goes, oh, it's obviously Jesus. But at the time, they had no clue. Like, how do you make sense of all this? And so they reason, and they search, and they, they try to make sense of all these things. They mull it over. See, that's what he's saying here. Verse 10, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. He goes on to, to, to when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They searched and inquired, trying to figure out who is this rescuer, right? The rescuer that was gonna crush the head of the serpent. When will he come? What will redemption look like? And it was so gracious of God, just to like breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb, trying to lay it out, what it looks like, and then you know what happens? 400 years of silence. No prophecies. People didn't hear anything new from God. 400 years of radio silence. And you can't help but think, Right? If you're in that moment and you're longing for that rescuer to come and to crush the serpent and make things all right, you're starting to wonder, is my hope futile? 
Like, is this actually worth the time and energy that I have investing and thinking and dreaming about this day when things are right? Oh, I can only imagine the frustration and despair that would set in. But then chapter three happens when no one expected it. A boy named Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You want to talk about being anonymous, right? There was no fanfare there. Kings weren't lined up. The, the rabbis weren't there to, to say the new era has begun. Jesus was in a stable, right? The only people who really were keyed in on it were, were the, the shepherds that angels came to and said, hey, guys, something's cool happened a few, de- few blocks down. That's the only people. And these shepherds, you can only think that these guys are are, are Jewish guys who have been raised in the tradition to think and long for this redeemer and rescuer to come. And they're wondering, is this it? Is is he finally here? Is, Is redemption happening? Is the promise beginning to be fulfilled? And Jesus' life progresses and prophecy after prophecy is being checked off, right? If you go down the list, yep, he did that, he did that, he did that. And it comes to the end of his life where he's betrayed, he's crucified, he's buried, he's resurrected. And you can see that every prophecy of what the Christ would be like, what the rescuer would be like is being fulfilled. Redemption is folding right in front of their eyes. Now this right here, friends, this is the moment that we have been waiting for. This is the moment the prophets were longing to see themselves. This is the beginning of a new era, literally, right? Our calendar is divided B.C., which means before Christ, and A.D., which means Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord, right? Our calendar is based upon the arrival of Jesus and most of us don't even know that. This is the apex of the narrative. God fulfilling the promises in the person and work of Jesus when hopes and dreams started becoming a reality, right? And for the first time in history, this downward spiral, it seems like it stopped. It's reached the all-time low and it seems like it's unraveling itself back up. Because Jesus went to the cross as a sinless substitute for our sin to bear God's judgment. And the resurrection shows us that our debt has been paid in full, that we as sinners have been redeemed from a life of destruction, that we are reconciled to God. Peter tells us that we are born again to a living hope because of God's great mercy. See, what's happening here is this chasm that separated us. Right When Adam and Eve were exited a from the garden is now we're, we're making our way back into it. But redemption is bigger. Listen, guys, redemption is bigger than just having your sins paid for. See, redemption is so big that it actually spins out into the fourth chapter of restoration where God isn't just making us right with him. He is making all things right. Racial injustice, poverty, chronic illness, 
mental health problems, marital strife, all things right. The curse that had ruined creation is now being reversed by the power of God through the resurrection, right? Because the resurrection shows us that death doesn't win. Death does not get the end say in things. The power of God is too strong. And through the resurrection, Eden will one day emerge from the ashes. See, in this Eden that's coming to us, this Eden that's out there someday that we will enter into is even better than the Eden that Adam and Eve got to experience for themselves because it is not corruptible. Right? Go back to Peter's. The inheritance that waits for us, it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is the Eden that we're headed back toward. See, but here's the thing. The prophets were searching and waiting, and they never got to see the manifestation of, of all these things. Right? Most of them had died before Jesus even came around. And a couple of them, right, there's, there's Zechariah, who God says is a prophet in, in the beginning of one of the Gospels, talked about uh, prophesying about the arrival of Jesus, that God was going to let him see the Messiah come, and then he would die. Or John the Baptist, who is known as the last prophet, he got to meet Jesus, but neither one of them got to see the end result. Neither one of them got to see the entirety of redemption accomplished in Christ. Just think about that. Of all the people that we have in, in the Old Testament, all the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, of all those guys, we have a better vantage point. We have a better perspective on what God is doing and has done and what will do than any of the people in the Old Testament. Here's, here's good news for them, right? They didn't get to see all of it happen. They didn't get to see the manifestation of it. But the work that they did was for our benefit. That's what, what's what Peter says in verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, that they had some sort of eternal significance in, in the prophesy, prophesying. That it was for us and our benefit. One thing that we need to do as Christians is to praise God for the faithful men and women who have come before us to tell us what to look for. Without their attentiveness to God's spirit, to not paying attention to what the spirit is telling them, even what that says, that the spirit of Christ in them discerning the times. We need to praise God for these people. But not just for those who prophesied in the Old Testament about what was coming, but those who would come after them to preach and proclaim the good news of Christ. That's what he continues on with, with verse 12. He says it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Friends, this church, 
would not be here today if it were not for the faithful saints who came before us, who proclaimed and announced the good news of Christ. Right, the Augustines, Luther, Calvin, John Bunyan, John Newton, Susanna Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and all of the unknown preachers, the anonymous preachers who have come before us to proclaim the good news of God from heaven. See, this is one of the things, as we're, as we're getting ready to, to purchase this building down the road a little ways, one of the things that I'm most encouraged by is by the lineage, the heritage of this church that is, is exiting and the faithfulness to the gospel that they've had for over a century. To know that they preached the gospel, that souls were saved there, we need to be thankful for people in our cities that are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the real gospel. See, these men, these preachers and women who came along and taught and, and instructed and pointed back to Jesus are doing exactly what the prophets did, prophets did, except on the other side of history. They're all pointing to Jesus. That's what they have in common. They all proclaimed and preached the good news of redemption to a people who are longing for good news. That before Jesus came, the prophets were saying that good news is on its way. And now that Jesus has come, the preachers are saying good news has come. saying that he's coming and he's going to make all things right. He's going to restore creation. He's going to bring us back to Eden. That God's plan that he had laid out before the foundations of the earth is in progress. Right? This is the answer to every problem we have. That God will make this world new. Now as great as these men and women were that came before us, the heroes of the faith, they could not do what they do or did without the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this continuation of the proclamation of the good news does not rest entirely on the shoulders of man because if it did, we would lose it by now. See, the tendency of man is that we are susceptible to forgetting, to walking away. This is one, one of the most significant urges that Paul lays out in his epistles is to remember that's the first thing. Remember the good news. And what Peter says is, is the perpetuation of the gospel of this redemptive story is driven by the Holy Spirit. That God uses people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And it's the same spirit that led to the prophecies 2,000 years ago and is compelling us to proclaim the good news today. Now this isn't just vocational preachers, right? We might read this and say, oh yeah, yeah, those who proclaim the good news, right? The people who stand behind pulpits, this is for them. But it's not just for vocational preachers, but for all believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? This is the reason, this is one of the primary reasons why when you come to faith, the Spirit moves into your heart. It's so that you would be equipped to proclaim the good news, the good news in which you hear and you receive and which you believe on. Now you are an agent of proclamation. Because the reality is that I, as a pastor, cannot get to the places where you are at throughout the week. 
right? You have contact with far more people than I could ever have. You, as a, a proclaimer of the good news, have accesses to the crevices and cracks of our society, places that are dark and need to hear the good news, that need to see the light of Jesus Christ. Right? That's our motivation for mission. Right? The goal isn't just to get people in this room. The goal is to go out and be heralds of good news, to proclaim the good news that everyone is longing for. You might be thinking, well, you know what, I'm not, I'm not good at that. I'm not trained for this. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to go about doing that. The only thing that you need to know, right, is the story of redemptive narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? All you need to know is that Jesus is the redeemer of all that's been broken. That by his atoning work on the cross, he has fixed our relationship with God. By his resurrection, he's making all things new. See, everyone that you will ever meet, their story can fit inside of God's redemptive story. Everyone you will meet is looking for some sort of redemption. Right, and I'm not just talking about a redemption in a way that, oh, somehow my sins are dealt with, but, but a redemption of how do I find purpose and meaning in life? A redemption that gives them sort of some sort of significance. What am I here on earth for? And without Christ, without the redemption of Christ, their story is left right in the middle of the fall. Without Christ, there is no redemption, there's no restoration. Maybe this is you this morning. You're looking for that kind of redemption. You're looking for meaning and significance. You're looking for a, a version of the good life. And you, you don't really know what it is you're exactly looking for, but you can kind of gather that you're looking for things in the wrong spot. Right? You might go to your marriage or, or your relationships and say, well, th this is what's going to this is what's going to give me some sort of redemption. This is what's going to give me meaning and purpose and, and, and make my life significant. But as soon as you have some sort of turmoil or, or relational issues, it, that does not create redemption. Right? That only perpetuates the fall. You might turn to your job. Oh, this will give me significance. This will give me meaning. This will give me purpose. This will make me right. This will give me the good life. But it doesn't. The economy might tank, you might lose your job, might get outsourced somewhere else. Your job doesn't make for a good redeemer. But here's what I think most of us are doing. A lot of us are looking to ourselves, and we wouldn't want to say it like that. Like we wouldn't want to say, oh, I'm trying to be my own redeemer. But functionally, this is what's happening. That we're trying to, to assume the role of the hero of the story. I was reading a book this, uh, this week. I came across a, um, a quote from Arnold um, Toynbee, who's a, a commentator of just basically historical everything, like the, the trends of, of humanity ever since we've had some documentation of it. And he, here's what he said. In surveying all cultures at all times in all places 
He says that self-worship is religion of mankind. What he's saying here is that in all times and all spaces, people are predominantly looking to themselves for some sort of redemption. And I need to tell you this morning that anything that is not pointing back to Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, as the one who's making things right, is a false gospel. And if you look in our world, there are so many false gospels out there. There are so many false narratives of the good life. Right? Turn on the TV and watch the commercials. They're all trying to pitch you some, some version of the good life to get you to bite in on it. Whether it's a new car or new TV or whatever the case. They're all pitching this idea of, of a good life. And anything that's not pointing back to Jesus is a false gospel. And any false gospel leaves you condemned. There is no good news from heaven in a false gospel. At best, at best, there is good advice that can only help your experience in the fall. But let me ask you this. What good is a battery-operated pocket fan in hell? What good is just improving the fall for you? We, don't, we just don't want to improve our, We want to experience redemption and restoration. And none of the other false gospels offer that. We have become the self-help generation. But all this does is make things worse. There is no redemption in it. See, Peter tells us the good news that we are longing for, the hope, the, the, the living hope that's in us for a completed salvation can only come from heaven through the Holy Spirit. See, Paul even talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we proclaim not ourselves, it's not a self-gospel, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. In Galatians 1, Paul says something similar. He says, there is no good news apart from Jesus Christ. See, if you want to hope that one day everything will be made right, that all creation will be restored, that mentally, physically, emotionally, in sickness and pain, uh, and on down the line, all of those things will be wiped out once and for all at the arrival of Jesus Christ in the last days. That we'll see him face to face, that we will taste and see the goodness of Jesus. And deep down, that's what we're all longing for. That's, that's what's woven into our DNA. So this is like a 30,000 foot view here, right? We're, we're talking about the story of redemptive history continuing. Like we might not live to see Jesus come back again. So like how, how do we make sense of this? How does this translate into my context for right now? Because on top of the normal struggles of life, Christians are feeling the pinch of not fitting in with the culture. Because if you believe the gospel and if you live like you believe the gospel, because our faith in the gospel requires gospel living, you can't just say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then you kind of carry on with your, Jesus takes our life and he transforms it. And if you're living that way, when you're all in for Jesus, you will be ostracized. 
people will look at you and say, that dude's a weirdo. See, non-Christians are gonna look at us and say, this story that you're buying into is some sort of fairy tale. But here's what I want you to see this morning. I wanna see a 30,000 foot view and then I wanna zoom in right here down on your street. This is what you can take comfort in, that your suffering will give way to glory. Listen, your suffering will one day give way to glory. How do I know that? Because that's the pattern of the gospels. That Jesus, even when we look at the prophets, what they were looking for, they were looking forward to, they were, they were predicting or, or, or prophesying about the sufferings of the Christ and his subsequent glories. That's the pattern of redemption. Suffering gives way to glory. So just because you aren't living in a completely redeemed state, and as much as you desire for that, it does not mean that one day you won't experience it. It just means that the remaining promises of future glory, of restoration, are yet to be completed, and they will be completed, just as Jesus has fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Messiah, of the one who'd come and be the rescuer. He will finish what he has started. See, that's what Peter is talking about in verses four and five, right? The future glory that's in heaven, and that we are being brought to it, that we are being guarded by faith to enter into it. Because the gospel story ends with glory, we can press through our sufferings and our trials right now. See, the guarantee of our future informs how we press through present suffering. There is no such thing as easy glory. You look at any athlete, you look at anybody who's skilled in in an art endeavor or or even in, in the business world, that never comes without some sort of pain and pressing and discipline. See, glory is made in the crucible. There's no such thing as easy glory, but take heart, friends. Jesus has borne the worst of it. Because of his work on the cross, you will never, ever have to suffer the way that he did. Because he went to the cross for you, you will never have to know what it's like to be separated from God. You will never have to know what it's like to reach the complete end of the spiral, to be in eternal death. You'll never have to know that. Jesus bore the worst of it for you. And in your trials and your difficulties now, he is with you until the end of the age, sustaining you to press through by the power of the Holy Spirit. So listen, whenever you face trials, whenever you are suffering, whenever you are going through a hard time, it is not punitive. It is not punishment. Jesus has taken all your punishment. What it is, is redemptive. It's restorative that God is making you fit for Eden. See, this is the good news that was preached to you, that, that, that Peter says, this is the good news. The, the, the preachers came and they, they preached about and proclaimed 
This is the good news that I'm proclaiming to you right now. This is the good news that we've been proclaiming since January. This is the good news that we'll continue proclaiming until Jesus comes back. That through faith in Christ, this world will be restored. That we will be reconciled to God. And a restored people will be the pinnacle of the restored world. See, but to get this, you must have faith that Jesus is the one who's making all things new. And through his substitutionary death and giving you his righteousness that you have been remade, you've been reborn, that you have an inheritance that cannot be defiled. And as I close, I just want to bring your attention to how verse 12 finishes. It says, this is a good news that the Spirit has been claiming through people who has been sent from heaven. Listen to this. Things into which angels long to look. What he's saying here is that angels just want to look, to, 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 to just focus on, dive into chapter three, right? Redemption. They want to look at the gospel Think about this, that angels who are in heaven with God, many of them who actually see God, they're baffled by the story of redemption that God's telling. They long to look at it. They want to dig into it. They just want to keep reading that chapter over and over and over again. It's so good. It's so sweet. Why? Because angels will never experience the kind of redemption that humans have. Angels don't get second chances. Satan and and those angels that followed his rebellion will be forever damned. But God is gracious to his people and he offers redemption through faith in Christ. That's why angels look at it. That's something that they can't touch. They look at it and say, how gracious is God? It's absolutely astonishing to them. So let me ask you, If this is astonishing to angels, is this astonishing to you? Do you just long for this? Do you crave this? Do you just want to keep going back to it each day, moment by moment, remembering and rehearsing the good news that was proclaimed to you? See, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't. We get so sidetracked by lesser things, right? We get, I, felt like I was more hyped about the fight last night than, I, than the gospel most of the times during the week. It's so easy to get derailed by this. And some of us, we, we might come in here on something and get tired of hearing, I know I talk for a long time, but we might get tired of hearing the gospel I know the gospel again this week, I guess. Doesn't have anything else to say. One thing Martin Luther said, the responsibility of a gospel preacher, his main objective is to beat the gospel into the head of the congregation continually. My primary job or whoever stands behind this pulpit, or any given pulpit, their job is not to tips and tricks on how to have a great lie. Their job is to present the gospel to you week in and week out. 
And so that in the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of God from the Holy Spirit, which is from heaven, that your heart may be stirred with affection, that you might be like the angels and long to look in it over and over again. And here's the thing, you don't just get to look at it, you get to experience it, you get to live in it day by day, moment by moment, that your righteousness is not in yourself, your redemption is based upon the work of Christ. And rejoice in that, that you could be like the prophets, be students of what God is saying, to search and inquire, how does the gospel shape my life? Friends, I want to be a church that is known for our love and our, our, our longing for the gospel. That's what we need to be known as. That's the only good news that's available for us and for the people in our city. I think as we do that, as we live in the gospel, as we realize that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A through Zs, it's the, the whole entirety of the gospel, that we would love it more and more. We would have a desire for others to love it as well. Thank God that he has made a way for us to taste of his salvation, to enjoy it, and for others to do as well. Father, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for the prophets who were for our benefit that pointed to the Christ and the preachers who came before us and proclaimed and pointed back to the redemption that is in Christ. Father, I ask that you would help us to be a story-formed people, a people who are formed by the story, the redemptive story that you have been laying out since the beginning of time. I pray, Father, that this, this hunger that we have for the new Eden would just intensify as time goes on, not in a way that causes us to have disdain and remorse for our current situation, but in a way that fuels us to live for glory, to suffer well, to press through whatever various trials come our way. And Father, more than anything, we need your help. We need the Spirit to fill us to live in such a way we need the spirit to do a work in us to become missionaries, to have a desire to see our unbelieving friends here in these seats and in the seats of our missional community, to have rooms full of people who are just inquiring and searching to know what exactly God is up to. Help us to be faithful. Help us to stand strong in our faith. For we know that the inheritance that you have set aside for us is protected in heaven and that we are being guarded to get there. We give you thanks for that in Christ's name, amen.